conceited. You have to love those hymns with a hidden verse, right? Join me now as we pray. Father, we come to you now and we pray that you as our good God and Father. We ask of you that you might forgive all of our faults and offenses and illuminate us by your Holy Spirit to have the true understanding of your Holy Word. Give us the grace that we need so we may handle it purely and faithfully. And this for the glory of your holy name. And that we would do it for edification of the church and for our salvation. And we ask these things in the name of the only and blessed Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to our two passages for this morning. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, and Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade in the Church, What Now? So since Monday, May 2nd, when there is the unprecedented leak of the draft and a majority opinion of the Supreme Court concerning the possibility of overturning Roe versus Wade, the subject of abortion and of choice, has dominated the news in, uh, in, uh, in conversations on many levels. A lot of opinions, a lot of things being said about it. Then, just a couple weeks ago, the official verdict was released by the Supreme Court, which read in part that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, that Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. And so those conversations that began on May 2nd continued on, now seem to be with a lot of emotion and opinions on all sides. I think it's safe to say that this has consumed the world around us. It's something we cannot seem to escape. If you look at any news outlet, either be print or on the TV or on the internet, at some point this issue is going to come up. You have a conversation with folks long enough, friends and family members, it seems like this is going to come up as well. So, abortion is a subject that is... Uh, is, a, is, is an issue, and it surrounds us. So the question we have is, what do we do with this? Do we put our heads in the sand, pretend like it doesn't exist, put our fingers in our ears, and sing la 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 so we don't hear it? What do we do with this? Well, Jesus tells us people that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And in part, what this means is that we as his people are not defined by the world. The world and its opinions, the world and its pundits, the world and its wisdom is not what defines us. God is the one who defines us. We are defined by God because we have been made in his image. He is our creator. We are his creation. We live in this world, but not of this world. We live in this world as his image bearers. And we aren't supposed to live in this world with our heads in the sand and pretending that everything is hunky-dory. Because in reality, the world is anything but hunky-dory. So therefore, abortion is something that you and I as Christians, as the body of Christ, need to talk about because everybody else is. And we need to talk about it so we can first and foremost know what God says about it. 
We want to know that so we can best engage in these conversations in a biblically winsome, truthful, and bold when needed manner. We're not always called to be bulls in china shops. We're not always called to be sledgehammers. There are times where boldness is needed. Make no mistake, the world has a lot of opinions on this. And we are not opinion-based people. We are God-based people. We are God's word-based people. We are truth-based people. So we need to know what God's truth says about it. We want God and his word to define our thoughts, our views, and our approach to this. Now, I purposely waited a couple weeks to preach on this because I was hoping the dust would settle a little bit. And that was very naive on my part because I don't think it settled much at all. But let me put this in the starkest terms for us this morning. If you are a Christian, if you're one who's taken on the name of Christ, you're gathered together as covenant community, you need to understand that you are squarely in the bullseye of the world. We are being watched. We are being baited. And we are being targeted because we are the enemy to some of these people. It's not a matter of if for us. It's just simply a matter of when. So it is of vital importance that we turn to God's word so we can hear him through his spirit speak his truth to us so we can plant our feet into his word and so we can then prayerfully prepare to engage the world around us. And that's our goal this morning. As we prepare to do that, I think it's important to clarify something. I was taught this years ago, and I tried my hardest to stay away from politics in the pulpit. I will not endorse a candidate from the pulpit unless it's Ann Bass for what she's running for next year. I won't tell you how to vote. I, I, I will do my best to not tell you how to take a particular political stance. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in this, but I try. But there are times, and I would argue it happens more than not, that politics and the church overlaps. Because think about what's the nature of politics. Politics are simply those activities and policies, policies through, through which the government rules. And the Bible has a lot to say about that, doesn't it? It tells us that God is the one who puts leadership in its place, what leadership is supposed to be and what we're supposed to do with leadership. And so we find there are those times and occasions where something that is very political very much collides with us as a church, collides with biblical truth. And we are not to shy away from political truth. I'm sorry, we are not shy away from biblical truth when it comes to biblical truth and fidelity. Simply put, when something political speaks opposite to God's word, it doesn't matter what party we are in, it doesn't matter who we identify, we identify first with God and his word, and that's where we stand. And we need to better seek to better understand what's happening around us than through the lens of God and his word. All that to say then is 
Abortion isn't just a political issue. This isn't a matter just of policy, good policy or bad policy. It is first and foremost a biblical issue because it's an issue of life. And I believe when we get to the core of this, it's really about a worldview. It's about a view of what constitutes life, what is the timing of life, and who is ultimately in control of life. And so when we're talking about life, we're not talking about something that's just political. We're talking about something that is biblical, it is theological, it is moral, it is ethical. This isn't about voting Republican or Democrat or this side or that side. We're talking about what constitutes life. And who defines life? And what do we do with life? So as Christians, we want to make sure that our feet are planted firmly on the solid ground of God and his word so we can best address the political side of this. Because it's not only a political side, there's an emotional side to this as well. And the older we get, the more we realize the best way to handle emotions is with truth. And so let's do that thing now, that very thing, by, by reading our passages for this morning to help guide us in our discussion. And we begin with Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where God says, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the the birds of the heavens and over the, the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man created in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we turn to Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. As I've mentioned, when we are talking about abortion, we are ultimately talking about worldviews. We're talking about who and or what defines how we view the world around us. As Christians, we understand it is God, through the work of his spirit and his word, that defines how we view the world around us. God defines the world because God's one who's created all things. And he is one who has given his word to us so we can understand and interact with the world around us. For example, we're to have good stewardship over this world because he's given it to us to be good stewards. And so when it comes to the issue of abortion, we're really coming to the issue of life, aren't we? What constitutes life? Who defines life and who defines what we can do with life? Well, when we come to this issue, we see that God clearly explains that he is the creator of all things, including life. That's a creation story, isn't it? He created all animals, and then on the sixth day, God created man and woman. They didn't, they didn't just appear, and they didn't just 
drop out of heaven. It was God who made Adam and then Eve. And actually what we see, as we talked about before in the creation story, is that when it comes to Adam and Eve, God's creatorship is more intimate than it has been anything else. Everything else he created by the power of his own word. He said, let there be trees. And there are pine trees with this pollen and its pine cones, right? And he said, let's create hydrangea bushes. And there's beautiful hydrangea bushes, right? He created all things by the power of his word until he gets to man and woman. And said, God took his hands and formed man out of the dirt. Took him and, and, and molded man and then breathed life. That, that divine, heavenly CPR. He breathes life in Adam. And he takes a rib out of Adam and creates woman from that. When we talk about Life. We're talking about by his own hands, God made man and woman. That's the intimacy of creation of man. Not that God spoke us into existence. Not that God wished us into existence. Not that God drew us into existence. But God, in his intimacy, with his own hands and his own breath, brought us into existence. And that intimacy... It's a continual thread through scripture as we, we see in our psalm reading. And, and we can say along the psalmist, God formed my inward parts. That, that's hands-on. God knit me together in my womb, mother's womb. That's, that's hands-on. God has, has fearfully and wonderfully made me because I made his image because I made hands-on. This is all intimate language. What was true for Adam and Eve, what's true for Psalmist, is, is true for us. We don't come off an assembly line. You know, God formed you. It's true for all of us. God knitted each of us together. He, he made each of us fearfully and wonderfully. Our worldview is very simple. God is the creator of life. Your life, of my life, of all life. Ever since Adam and Eve, God is the creator of all life. In that worldview, in that understanding, includes children. We see an example in Psalm 127. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. We say that and we go, well, okay, that, that's biblical. But that's a rather radical view in today's world, isn't it? Because what's, what's the argument? Their financial burden. The timing isn't right. I don't want to have to suffer the consequences of my actions. Children in the world are no longer seen as a gift. But God, the creator of life, the creator of all things, says that they are a gift and that includes the babies, the children who are in the womb. Isn't it amazing to think that every pregnancy, since Eve's first pregnancy, Every baby was sovereignly created by God. 
It's amazing to think, isn't it? Every baby ever born was knitted together by God, formed by God, known by God. That's our worldview. Because that's what God says. And we, we, we can take that old saying and say, well, God says it, I believe it, and that's, that's true here. But, but, it, but it goes further, because not only are we told that he's the creator of all life, in our Genesis passage, he explains that everyone who's ever been created has been created in his image. Let us, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us create man in our image, in the image of the triune God. Every person ever created since Adam has been created sovereignly by God in his image. Every, every pregnancy either ends in birth or miscarriage or, or, or anything. Every pregnancy is about an image bearer of God. Which means then we take all this together God's the creator of all life, even at life in the womb, and all people are creating the image of God, even at life in the womb, that it means that we're no longer talking about a clump of cells in a mother's womb. We're no longer talking about some amorphous blob that's just floating around in a mother and will have no identity, will have no definition until the moment it's born. We are talking about a person. We're talking about somebody who's created by God. We're talking about somebody who is created by God in his image. That is the biblical worldview. And, and, and the one of the wonderful things that comes from that is it means there are no biological accidents. And that includes deformities and disabilities. We think of what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 4. Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Every aspect of our being, even, even those we may consider flaws or defects, has been ordained by the Lord according to his purpose. Every creation is an act of God. That's what we celebrate at Camp Joy. We have those in our lives who are considered to be disabled or, or, or to have uh, something wrong with them. And our worldview looks at them and says, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made. See, we're not just a product of some biological sequence or a collection of cells. We're not simply a lump of expanding human tissue. Our, our skins, our bones, our muscles, that, that's not what makes it the sum of our existence. This, this is all just merely a vessel that contains the image of God. Everything we need for thinking and acting and feeling and knowing and trusting and hoping, everything that's fundamental to being a person is, is right there present in the womb. And the end result of all this is that it, as image bearers, we have an innate value in creation. Every human life is sacred because every human life was created by God in his own image. That is our biblical worldview. So we are talking about abortion. We're talking about a worldview that has to define what life is. And for us, life is defined by God who created all life and created all life in his image. And, and the wonderful thing is even, even science 
points to this. At three weeks, at week three, a baby's heart begins to beat. That's, that's life. Week six, there's brain activity. Week eight, there's fingers and toes form. Week nine, yawning begins and continues the rest of our lives, right? 28 days, there's eye, ear, and respiratory systems begin to form. 42 days, brain waves are recorded. There's a complete skeleton. They have reflexes. Seven weeks, seven weeks, not even two months. The baby begins sucking its thumb. Eight weeks, all body systems are present. Nine weeks, they can squint, swallow, move tongue, and, and make a fist. Sixteen weeks, they can grasp with hand, they swim, they kick, they turn, they somersault. Eighteen weeks, they, can, they have vocal cords. Twenty weeks, they have hair on their head. Even science says, this is life. The philosophically worldview, what we're talking about is, is image bearers, our God are in the womb, sovereignly created by God. So when we are talking about abortion, we are talking about a worldview that defines what is life. It's ordained by God. It's created by God. And it's created by God in His image. Now imagine most of us are sitting here this morning and you're going, well, yeah, I, I get that. I know this is, this is true. It's, it's, it's all good. But we should never assume that's true for everybody in the church. And especially when you get to the younger generations. You may be surprised at how many children in the church in, in, in their 20s and young word have an opposite view. Take the, the more humanist view of this issue by saying it's more about choice than anything else. What the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade as, as federal law, that the, the battle cry is all about a woman's right to choose. Now think about what this means in terms of a worldview. It means that the woman is the ultimate authority of what constitutes life and what can be done with this life, and the government is there to facilitate that view. Who's the one who in this view, who's the one who, who says what constitutes life? It's, it's, it's the woman. Who's the one who says what can be done with this life? It, it, it's, it's the woman. No longer God. It's a person. And if you've been listening to these arguments, there's, there's, been, a, there's been an interesting shift taking place. And the shift is being made by some, not by all. I don't, we're not going to categorize everybody on that side. Not by all, but there's a good number of supporters of, of Roe versus Wade, including those in, in leadership, so, some organizations that made the argument that ultimately it does not matter when life begins. They've gone on record saying it doesn't matter when life begins. That that it, that thing in the womb can be considered life and human. None of that matters in light of a woman's right to choose. So understand how this worldview then frames this argument that choice comes before life. Choosing comes before living. No matter the evidence of what is happening in the womb, choice comes before living. I hope you understand that's a radical logic to adopt. And it's radical for a couple of reasons. First, because you have to divorce God from that logic. Because choice has now become God. 
when when you say it no longer matters if if, if that if what is in the womb is, is human or not, life or not, if that no longer matters, choice is what matters, and choice has become God. It no longer matters what God says, it only matters about what I want. No longer do we care about what constitutes life. We've now made an idol of the freedom of choice. And make no mistake about it, it is idolatry. We have taken God off his throne and we put our choice on it. But when we turn to Romans 1 and we read what happens when you divorce God from the situation, then you take away all boundaries. That's what Romans 1 explains to us. If you don't want God, you divorce God from the process, then all boundaries are taken away. And so we take away boundaries in this end. There is no end to choice. And that's why we find there have been arguments made that a mother now has the right, or should have the right, a mother should have the right to abort a child post-birth. That's where this worldview can lead to. You can go through nine months of pregnancy. You can have your baby. They can wrap your baby all up and put a little stocking cap on her. And you can begin to feed the baby, and you can name the baby. And two or three days into it, you can say, I think I'm having buyer's remorse. And people are arguing, then you should have a right to euthanize that child. That's not hypothetical. That's not radical Christian hyperbole. That has been stated by leaders in Planned Parenthood who have gone on record saying this. That's why some states have floated language supporting that right to choose. When you take God out of the equation and you argue choice above all else, where will it end? No longer are children seen as blessings. No longer are they seen as image bearers. No longer are they seen worthy of life. Now they're just left up to your whims. Does this child check off every box that I want? And if not, then I have the right to get rid of it. When you take God out of the equation and you argue choice above all else, where does it end? Maybe this isn't as apple to apple as I think it is, but bear with me. It's next Sunday. And at the end of the announcements, I say, I want to make a personal announcement. Beth and I have have been prayerfully considering this, and we've been praying about it for a while, and we've sought counsel, and we've come to a difficult decision. And as we've come to realize that having three children is a financial burden on our family. And they take up a good bit of our time. And life just isn't as easy as we would like for it to be. So we have decided to euthanize Patrick for those very reasons. It will help us financially. It will free us up. And we, have to quit. We, won't, we won't have to listen to him and his sister bicker all the time. It's a hard decision. But please respect our decision. I, I, I trust that all of you would look at me like a murderous monster. 
And at least one of you would get up and try to grab all of our children and take them away from us. It sounds ridiculous, right? But it's possible. According to arguments that are being made. When we take God out of the equation, we end up with Romans 1, and freedom of choice has become a God, and there's no end to where that God of choice will lead. This is why worldviews are important. Either God is shaping how you view the world and life, or the world is shaping you. But what we need to understand, and we're going to end on this, is that our worldview encompasses all life from womb to tomb. Throughout Scripture, we see that God makes special provisions for the poor, for the weak, and for the helpless. Over and over, he, he calls his people to look after those who cannot look after themselves. We think of Psalm 82. It says, it gives clear instruction to believers that we are exhorted to vindicate the weak and the fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted and the destitute, to, to rescue the, the weak and the needy, to deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. God and his covenant Israel built in a, a, a provision for any harm and it might come to a child while still in his mother's womb, but he also calls us to love our neighbors. And James tells us that true religion is looking after widows and orphans, looking after those in need. So because of that, I will say, I don't think it's appropriate for us as God's people to have a victory parade with ticker tape and celebrate an end zone because of the Supreme Court decision. I think we can rejoice in it but we don't do a victory dance because there are people out there who still need to be ministered to. All of life is precious to God and therefore should be precious to us. So the question we have to contend with as a church is what do we do now about the mother who doesn't want to keep her baby? About the single mother who doesn't know how she can afford the child, the woman who's been abused and is now pregnant. Because understand, Scripture makes it very clear that Christians are known by how we love one another and how we love our neighbors and how we love those in need. So ministry matters more than celebrating being right. Loving others means more than dancing, or loving others means more than, than dancing on the grave of Roe versus Wade. And you look through the history of the church. We have this rich history of doing that very thing, of taking care of single mothers and, and, and orphans. Think about, you know, you have Baptist Hospital and, and Presbyterian Hospital, right? Or they've changed their names over the years, but there's hospitals, there, there's orphanages, there's crisis pregnancy centers, there, there's ministries. You go through the history of the church and you find it's often the God's people who are on the front lines who are going out there taking care of those who need to be taken care of. I just saw a statistic that says a vast majority of adoptions done in America are done by Christian families. Those who are, are not able to have children and those who are able to have children. Because built into our spiritual DNA as Christians is we, we love and we take care of the destitute. We love and we take care of those who need help. We love and take care of the orphans. So Bethel, we need to make sure that we continue to be a part of that rich history of care and concern. Many of us have prayed against Roe versus Wade, and the Lord has answered those prayers. But we need to make sure we are just as committed to those who have been affected by this. There are still going to be unwanted pregnancies. There are still going to be bad situations. And our church needs to be ready to minister in those sort of occasions. Of 
talk to Chris about this. I would like to see our church get involved with ministries such as a moment of hope. This is out of Columbia. It's begun by Elder Mark Bumgardner at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. And one of their ministry directives is to mentor, evangelize, and practically care for mothers who choose life, connecting them to a local church. So not only have they taken a stand against abortion, but they've also taken a stand for taking care of these women who need help physically and spiritually. Diapers and Bibles. Milk and church. Let us make sure that we are lighter Christians who have done this for thousands of years, that this is part of our worldview, that God cares for all life. As we, we close this morning, I know there's many aspects of this issue that we, that we just don't have time to cover, such as understanding that what we stand against is abortion as birth control. There are, there are health issues that may necessitate the option of abortion. For the life of the mother or for the life of the child, there are nuances to this. And it also needs to be understood that abortion is never the unforgivable sin. There is always sufficient grace provided for those who turn to Jesus. And that's really the core issue of all this. It's to make sure that we have a worldview that is shaped by Jesus, by Jesus loving us, calling us to faith in him, and equipping us to live a life of faith in him. What these folks need most is Jesus. What everybody needs is Jesus. The love of Christ to come alongside them and say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you how precious life is to my God. And I at one time was a spiritual orphan. And the father of all creation gave up his only son so I could be his. What this situation needs, what everybody needs, is Jesus. None of us are perfect. We all need Jesus. So let us make sure we have that biblical worldview. We've come to Jesus rested upon him so we can take him winsomely and lovingly and graciously to others always pointing them to Jesus who is the author of life join me as we pray